Welcome to Fast Asleep. Whether you're here to embark on a beautiful night's sleep or just to listen to an exceptional story, thank you for being here. The mystery of an old-fashioned telephone. You know, grandma's in the hall on that funny table. What makes it so intriguing, though? Mary Treadwell knew. Born in London in 1910, she was an author, literary editor, and, oh, BBC producer. And her short story is complete for you now in this episode. Let's waste no more time. Let's tuck right in and enjoy. The Telephone. If you would catch the spleen and laugh yourselves into stitches, follow me. I called to Sir Toby, and as I ran across the stage, caught the eye of the white-haired man in the VIP's row. The light from the stage streamed out over the darkened theater. He was leaning forward, amused, laughing. And as Sir Toby chased me, I laughed back. I had fallen in love with him at sight. And there, from the middle of the stage, at an end-of-term dramatic school performance of Twelfth Night. We met at the party after the show and met again and again. And then we began to meet in backstreet Soho restaurants and then in my tiny London flat. I loved him desperately. I had never been in love before and Alan had not been in love for 30 years, not since he had married Catherine. He told me in some queer little snowbound Canadian township, I never meant this to happen. I never felt like this about any woman before. I don't understand myself, he said restlessly. All through the winter, I clung to Alan we kept the long secret winter afternoons and evenings together. There was so much that he wanted to give me. The things that I wanted for myself, more than wanted, believed that I must have. I want to give you kindness and shelter and love, he said. He and Catherine had had no children, but it could not go on like that. Every time he came to my flat, the conflict in him deepened. It was like the deepening rift splitting a tree trunk down to its roots. He would turn wearily towards me. How can I hurt her? He would ask me. Catherine and I, we've been together all these years long before you were even born. Why, I knew her when she was a schoolgirl, a child. Look at what we've done together. Look at our work. I tried to understand. But I seemed to see only a gray, ghostly marriage, a kind of deadly, intellectual middle-aged companionship stretching back down the years 
But there was nothing there, I thought, that should be preserved. It would be so different for us, I thought. And I clung the more desperately. I cannot live without you, I said, believing that I could not. Our dilemma, well, Alan's agony, was resolved by Catherine finding out there was no drama, no scenes. During the next few months, I never knew what passed between them. I dared not ask. I felt like a child whose parents are gravely discussing in the next room portents beyond its comprehension. But presently, Catherine went unobtrusively back to Canada without Alan. Alan shut up the house in Hampstead, and I, well, we both talked of selling it. We, neither of us, wanted to live there. Immediately after our marriage, we came up to this cottage in the Western Highlands, which we rented through an advertisement in the Times. That year, Scotland had, oh, one of its rare, perfect summers. We bathed and fished, and the long halcyon days passed over us with scarcely a break in the weather. I was blissfully happy. Free from the conflicts and the indecisions of the past months, we turned again to each other, discovering new releases, a new and deepening absorption. Our cottage lay by the shore in a curve of the hills. And whenever I remember that summer, it seems as if the falling tides of the Atlantic were always in our ears and as if the white sands were always warm under our bare feet. But again, it could not last. One scorching day in early September, I came round the cottage at lunchtime, carrying a pot roast over to the table under our rowan tree. I found Alan sitting, staring down at an open airmail letter that the postman had just delivered. He looked up as I put the pot roast down. His face was dazed and his hands were shaking. Catherine is dead he said incredulously. Dead. Why, this letter's from her sister in Toronto. She says, and he stared again at the letter as though they were lying words. She says, heart failure. Very peacefully. Very peacefully, she says. His eyes went past mine to the open sea, and then he got up and went into the house while I... I stayed, pleating the gingham cloth between my fingers. Once more I felt like the child who had inadvertently witnessed a parent's distress. Shocked, yes, but horribly embarrassed. And then I followed Alan into the cottage and I put my arms around him. All that day I watched over him in my heart as he moved about the place. But we did not mention Catherine, nor the next day. And although I waited for Alan to speak, her name never passed our lips during the next three weeks.
three weeks later to the day. Among other letters forwarded from London by the post office arrived the telephone bill for the Hampstead house. Oh, the second demand. Oh, we'd forgotten about the first. Damn, said Alan. We were again eating our lunch in the garden. Damn, I ought to have had the thing disconnected before we ever left London. I picked up the envelope and looked at the date of forwarding. Oh, well, they've probably, they'll probably have cut you off themselves by now, I said. But Alan was already crossing the grass to collect the pudding from the kitchen oven. Oh, go in by the hall, I called after him. You can find out if it's still connected by ringing the number. If you hear it ringing away at the London Inn, you'll know it's still on. And I lay back in my deck chair, staring up at the scarlet rowan berries against the sky and thinking that Alan was beginning to hump his shoulders like an old man and that his skin looked somehow as if the sea salt were drying it out. Well, I said, still connected? Perhaps I invented the slight pause before Alan carefully set down the apple pie and replied, Yes, still connected. That evening I went up to bed alone because Alan said he wanted to trim the lamps in the kitchen. I was sitting in the window in the late highland dusk brushing my hair and looking out over the sea when I heard a light tinkle in the hall below. I turned my head, but the house lay silent. I went over to the door. Hampstead, nine, six, eight, four, three. Alan's voice, low, strained, came up the stairs. There was a long silence. And then my heart turned over, for I heard his voice again, whispering, oh, my dear, my dear. But the words broke off, and from the dark well of the hall came a low sob. I suppose I moved, and a floorboard creaked, because I heard the receiver laid down, and I saw Alan's shadow move heavily across the wall at the foot of the stairs. We lay side by side that night, and we never spoke. But I know that it was daybreak before Alan slept. During the next few days, I became terribly afraid. I began to watch over Alan with new eyes, those of a mother. For the first time, I knew a quite different tenderness, one that nearly choked me with its burden of grief and fear for him as he moved about the cottage like a sleepwalker, trying pathetically to keep up appearances before me, his face, as it seemed, aging hourly in its weariness. I became frightened, too, for myself. I kept telling myself that nothing, nothing had happened, but in the daytime I avoided looking at the dead black telephone 
inert on its old-fashioned stand in the hall. At night, I lay awake, trying not to picture that telephone wire running tautly underground, away from our cottage, running steadily south, straight down through the border hills, down through England. During that week, I tried never to leave Alan's side, but once I had to go off unexpectedly to the village shop, and when I returned, I had to pretend that I hadn't seen him through the half-open door, gently laying down the receiver. And twice more in the evening, and there must have been other times, when I was cooking our supper, he slipped out of the kitchen, and I heard that faint, solitary tinkle in the hall. Now, I could have rung up the telephone people and begged them to cut off the Hampstead number, but with what excuse? I could have taken pliers and wrenched our own telephone out of its socket. I knew that nothing would be solved with pliers. But by the weekend, I did know what I could try to do for sanity's sake to prevent us from going down into the solitudes of our guilt. On Friday afternoon, after tea, my opportunity came. It was a glorious evening, golden, with the sand blowing lightly along the shore and a racing tide. I persuaded Alan to take the boat out to troll for mackerel on the turn. I watched him go off from the doorway. I waited until I actually saw him push the boat off our small jetty. And then I turned back into the cottage and closed the door behind me. I had shut out all the evening sunlight so that I could hardly see the telephone. But I walked over to it. I took it up in both my hands. I drew a long, deep breath. And I gave the Hampstead number. All that I'd been told of Catherine during those bad months in London had been of kindness and gentleness and goodness. Nothing of revenge. To this I clung, and upon it I was banking. My teeth were chattering, and I was shaking all over when the bell down in London began to ring. I suppose at that moment I lost my head. I thought I could have sworn. I heard the receiver softly raised at the far end. I suppose I should have waited instead of bursting into words. And now I shall never know. And they were not even the words I'd planned. I suppose I reverted, being so frightened, to the kind of prayer one blurts out in childhood. Please, please, I said down the mouthpiece. Please, let me have him now. I know Everything I've done has been wrong, and it's too late about that. But I won't be a child anymore. I'll look after him like you've always done, I said. Only please, let me have him now. I'll be a wife to him, I promise you. 
And if that's what you're wanting, I can get him right again and I'll take care of him now and forevermore, I said. And I banged the receiver down and fled upstairs to our bedroom. Through the window, I could see the little boat bobbing about on the sea. I sat down in the window in the full evening sun and I shook all over and I, I cried and cried. In the small hours of the morning came the crisis. I woke, it must have been about half past four. The bed was empty. In an instant, I was wide awake because down in the hall, I could hear the insistent tinkle of the telephone receiver struck over and over again. And above it, mingled with it, Alan's voice. Well, somehow I got the lamp lighted, the shadows tilted all over the ceiling, and I could hear the paraffin sloshing round the bowl. As I stumbled out to the head of the stairs, I heard, Catherine, Catherine. He was shaking the receiver and babbling down the mouthpiece, and when my light from the staircase fell upon him, he, he let the receiver drop and stood looking up at me. I can't get her, he said. I wanted her to forgive me, but she doesn't answer. I can't reach her. I brought him up the stairs. I can remember shivering with the little dawn sea wind blowing through my cotton nightdress from the open window. I made him tea while he sat in the window, staring up at the gray clouds of the morning. And at last, he said, You must book yourself a room at one of the hotels in Oban. Only for a couple of nights. I'll come back, probably tomorrow or the next day. You see, and he began to explain carefully, politely, as if to a foreigner. You see, I have got to find Catherine. So I have to go down unexpectedly to London. From our remote part of the Highlands, there are only two trains a day. Alan went on the early morning one. I had, of course, no intention of going to any hotel. I knew where my promise to Catherine lay, where lay my love. I said yes, oh yes, to everything Alan said, and I stayed in the cottage all that day. And then I caught the evening train. There was no chance of a sleeper. I huddled in the corner of a carriage packed with returning holiday makers. My face turned first to the twilight and then to the darkness rushing past the window. In the dead, cold hours, when the other passengers sprawled and snored, the terror for Alan nearly throttled me. Once I dozed off and I woke, biting back a scream because I thought I saw the telephone wire running alongside the train, stretched 
and singing. You'll never know. You'll never know. Euston in the morning loomed gaunt and monstrous. The London streets were dripping with autumn rain. I told the taxi man to drive as fast as possible up to Hampstead. When he pulled up in Allen's Road before a gate set in a high wall, well, I was already half out of the taxi. I pushed the fare at him, slapped open the gate, and ran up the short drive. I just had time to notice that the white Regency house was more or less what I had pictured before I was up the flight of steps and tugging at the iron bell pull. I was tired, oh, deadly tired and deadly afraid. What courage I had ever had seemed to have fled. I promise, I promise, oh, if you've ever really been here, please have gone, I gabbled while the London rain poured over me and the bell reverberated through the house. At last, I heard a movement inside the house and then footsteps slowly drawing towards the door. For a second, Alan and I stood gazing at each other and then suddenly I was over the threshold and in his arms while the door swung gently to behind us. I drew him over to the staircase, drew him down, knelt beside him as he sat there on the second stair. He turned his face against my shoulder and heaved a sigh. After a little while, I raised my head and looked about me. We were in a large white paneled hall with a window through which I could see a plain tree, its quiet branches stroking the glass. The only thing in common with our hall up in Scotland was the telephone, standing on a mahogany table against the wall. For some moments, I gazed at it. My terror was wholly gone like a dream at morning. But I became aware of a new emotion, disquieting, faintly discreditable. I looked suspiciously down at Alan. I wanted to know. Cautiously, I began to frame my question. He was so still that I wondered if he had fallen asleep. Just then he stirred and I took his head between my hands and as he smiled at me, turned his face searchingly towards the light. It was calm, as though washed by tidal waters. I knew that I could never ask my question. At that moment, the front doorbell began to peal we both jumped and got to our feet. You go, said Alan, disappearing into the back of the house. The sharp-nosed young man in the dripping Macintosh was aggrieved. Been sent to cut you off, he said. 
Bill unpaid. Nothing done. I turned back into the hall. Above me, above me. The house lay quiet. Only against the window, the boughs of the plane tree clamored. In a sudden flurry of wind and rain. That question I could never ask. The answer never to be given. Surely both were irrelevant. For all the tranquility of the house, I felt my panic begin again to stir. There was one thing, only one thing, that mattered to me, to us. Alan, I called, and I tried not to let my voice quaver. It's about the telephone. Do you, do you want it cut off? I held my breath. The reply came immediately. Why, darling, we're going back to Scotland tonight, out of this damnable climate. We don't want to pay for what we aren't going to need anymore. Tell them they can disconnect it at once.